Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. that we're doing uh, work on you. 
because um, sometimes we get just past the halfway point, and then uh, the old habits. Do you know those? <laughs> yeah, they really want to come forward. Um, so we have to uh, really give some space for them to hang around so that they have some respect and they're not repressed. And um, at the same time, we can let ourselves go deeper uh, into the practice. Uh, it's just like when you're sitting, you'll notice that when you sit, um, there's all kind of plateaus that you get to. So sometimes you sit and everything's just really good. Um, this is always like an interesting thing on retreats, especially when people come in for interviews and they say, oh yeah, things are really good now. And mm -hmm. I think to myself, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> We're so attached to pleasure. Mm -hmm. So as soon as there's any part of the practice that's pleasurable, we just hold on to it. Mm -hmm. And then the ego comes in and thinks, yeah, I know what this is all about. This is what it's all about. And uh, so in, in uh, both the Patanjali tradition, uh, much more so in the Buddhist tradition, uh, there's a term that gets used a lot called dukkha. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of this term? <laughs> I live in it. <laughs> you live in it. <laughs> That's just an immigration problem. <laughs> There's some people here who can help you with that. Um, uh, dukkha is actually an interesting word. Um, uh, remember yesterday we talked a little about the word uh, karma, and just about how that changes over time. D dukkha is another one of those words that changes over time. Etymologically, the, the root of dukkha comes from, it's a compound word, and it comes from two terms uh, spliced together. Uh, the first is du, which is actually where through Latin you get the English word dirty. And ka is an abbreviation of the Sanskrit word akash, or akasha, which means space. So dukkha referred at one time to a dirty space. And it had two meanings. One is a wound. It was used in medicine to describe a wound, which is an opening that's dirty. And the other is um, to describe the hub where the axle fits in to a chariot wheel uh, before there were ball bearings. So before the days of ball bearings, which is probably one of the most amazing inventions, um, you would just take a wood axle and you would put it into the center of a chariot wheel and then what would happen to that space over time mm -hmm. out. yeah it would get worn out right? um, so this was called dukkha um, and dukkha was considered uh, psychologically as the idea developed more uh, individually dukkha was considered uh, a mood or a feeling or something that happened to you in your life uh, I think we all relate to Dukkha this way. Um, you see this a little bit in the Yoga Sutra too, the sense of there, there can be Dukkha or there can be Sukkha. That there can be uh, this kind of uh, experience that we always translate it as suffering. But let's not translate it. 
Uh, and then there's an opposite to dukkha, which is sukha. And there's a sense that during the day, or maybe in one minute, you oscillate a few times back and forth between dukkha and sukha. Um, I like to think of dukkha as the experience of being unsatisfied. The chronic experience of being unsatisfied. Or, uh, my favorite translation of Dukkha is David Loy's translation. Um, it's so good to hear that David came to visit Copenhagen and might even come again, um, which is uh, translating the word Dukkha as lack, <coughs> the experience of lack. Um, the Buddha played with this term a little bit, and what he added to this term was that Dukkha is not a state of mind that comes and goes but rather it's an experience that's built into life. It's built into being a person. It's built into being a person in relationship, in a body that's changing. And most people uh, translate one of the Buddha's first teachings as life is a bummer. (laughs) Life is suffering. But actually, that's not what he was getting at. Uh, One of the Buddha's first messages is that if you look closely at your moment-to-moment experience, you'll see that suffering, not suffering, dukkha, this, this sense of unsatisfaction, seems built in to the equation. And implicit in that teaching is the understanding that If you have a religious tradition trying to transcend dukkha, it's going to lead to more dukkha. Mm -hmm. Because the problem with being unsatisfied is not that you're unsatisfied. The problem is everything that you add on to it. The problem with a sense of lack is not that you feel that you're missing something, but that you try to fill it up. And because the self is actually an impermanent and empty phenomenon that's constructed moment to moment, there's always going to be the experience of lack. Because it's not built, in, it's not built on anything. So when we're clinging as a self, we're always going to experience this sense of being unsatisfied. And it's kind of an existential dissatisfaction, so to speak. It's the inability to experience contentment. So in a way, you could say, yes, it's true. Sometimes we feel this, sometimes we don't. But it's kind of a radical statement to make a leap and say, actually, this is built into human life. And most people hear this and they think, this is such a pessimistic philosophy that forget this, I'm going to go follow John Friend around the United States. (laughs) Did you record that? So, So if suffering, or this feeling of being unsatisfied, is built into experience, 
you can actually see it in a moment-to-moment -moment way when you're sitting. And then you may realize that the only way to work with it is to embrace it. Is to embrace it. Because you see suffering as this moment-to-moment -moment constructed experience. And it's not even you that's constructing it. It's just happening due to the conditions of being in a body, being in a relationship. Your body's impermanent. It's vulnerable. And that's why your life is so precious. Because it's so fragile. Just like animals. They're so fragile. Their life is dependent on so many factors in the ecosystem. For us, we forget this because we turn on water and it comes out of the tap. But our life is so fragile. And it's changing. And there isn't anything that flows with change except for love. Because love is the, the fluid quality that can work with impermanence. And so love is the coming together of these two themes we've been working with for the past few days. Renunciation and relationship. If you were a good uh, academic, uh, love is the uh, integration of emptiness and compassion. Seeing that whatever you think exists never exists the way you think it does. On the one hand, and on the other hand, so that generates a sense of openness to our experience. Because you don't know what it is. And maybe this is the key to relationship. Mm. Is that you don't know the person you're in relationship with. They hardly know who they are. <laughs> They're trying to figure out who they are. Mm. And so maybe the best thing we can do in our relationships for love to show up is uh, to not depend on other people. Like, uh, when you sit, it's so important that you learn how to sit up without leaning against the wall. So that when things get hard in your life, you know how to really take up the posture and just sit there. And when dukkha is present, to turn towards it. That awful space or that experience of lack. And because all of us are so deeply interconnected, even though we're so individual, um, you also can't help but feeling more sensitively, as time goes on, the pain of other people. So as long as there are hundreds of thousands or millions of people in prison, you can't be free. As long as there are hundreds of thousands or millions of people in pain, 
you are going to feel that pain. And so when you realize this, your practice gets so big, because it's not about you anymore. So we're so busy all trying to get enlightened. And then we grow up. And then we see that our awakening is actually dependent on other people being free. And then we roll up our sleeves, and we replace the whole spiritual project of transcendence with craft. And I was told that there isn't a Danish word for craft that has the same nuance. Is that true? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> We're right. you know, content with the words that you have in English. So. Right. Lucky you. Lucky. You mean craft, craft like how? Craft like a craft of doing something like an artisan, artisanal craft? Mm-hmm. Handwerk. Handwerk, yeah. That's the same in German. But it's, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's not, it's it's not, not a skillfulness yeah. or something like that. So the, the reason why I use the word craft is that it connotes having an erotic relationship with a material. Mm-hmm. Can I say something? Yeah. I think we do have it in Danish, but I think uh, for a long period in society we just devalue it for academic knowledge. Right. Mm-hmm. But it is actually yeah. in the word for yeah. some people. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. In, in. <laughs> like yeah. You mean like it's the thing that the uneducated people do in the country? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's, there's been a weird thing happening here because yeah. there's such a huge uh, emphasis on education. Yeah. That's sort of academic academic, academic education. Yeah. That's sort of this beautiful tradition in Denmark of like Hanback. Because I mean, uh-huh. they, they make beautiful yeah. furniture. It's fallen. It's fallen down. Right. And so, like the carpenters aren't nearly everyone on the. Of course, nothing is ever had the way it used to be. But there is sort of a. A schism. Right. So yeah. academia, when it's done really well, is also yeah. craft. Um, anything you look at when it's done with passion, because someone really cares, is a craft. Mm. And to really excel in craft, you have to take risks. Um, and so in, in Greece, this was called eros. Mm. Because uh, when your practice develops, you begin to get a sense of an appreciation more for the erotic or beautiful quality of being engaged in something. This is not talked about enough. And in our misunderstanding of spiritual practice as transcendence, Mm. then this doesn't leave a world that we're interested in making beautiful. It leaves the world that we're interested in getting beyond. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But actually, when you look at cultures where spiritual practice is at the center of the culture, those people then roll calligraphy, mm-hmm. architecture, painting, mm-hmm. pottery, mm-hmm. inventions into their practice. To, because when you're connected with your life, you want to be surrounded by beauty. And usually a very simple kind of beauty. Craft. Mm-hmm. We all know this, right? Mm-hmm. Look around the city and you can see eras in the culture where people were interested mm-hmm. in making social space beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean the king donates some money to some carpenters, but that the carpenters are interested mm-hmm. 
even if it's so small. When you put your hand on your yoga mat in Trikonasana, that's not just putting your hand on your yoga mat in Trikonasana. That's actually a form of craft. It's creating a deeper relationship with the material, not trying to escape it somehow. And the goal of all this is purusha. In my opinion, mistranslated as pure awareness. The root of the word purusha literally means a person. It's actually where you get the word, a person. And I think the goal of our practice needs to be focused on becoming a person. Our culture needs more people. Do you understand what I mean by that? Mm. No. No. How do you become who you are? Mm. As opposed to this whole project of trying to escape. Mm. Not this body, not the body, not the city. Biodiversity. Biodiversity. So I uh, like to simplify this and call this falling in love. It's like looking at a baby. Uh, Karina and I call it baby TV. <laughs> Has anybody here looked lately at the fingernails of a baby? Yeah. So precise, so small, so innocent. How many people here have smelt the head of a baby? Yeah. It's an amazing, amazing thing. Unbelievable. And you can't help when you have this experience with a baby. And I don't mean just your own baby. Like just, it doesn't have to be your own baby. Some people are not going to have babies. And you have that smell. And you can't help but falling, fall in love with it. And then you can't think about anything else. It's exactly the same thing that happens when you fall in love with a person. You can't stop thinking about it. You can get this with puppies. <laughs> they don't smell exactly as good. <laughs> and we've been talking a little bit about the impermanence of the honeymoon period in this essay we've been studying. But let's not also forget that the beauty of the honeymoon period, it is, allows us to fall for something that's not ourselves. And in doing so, we're not isolated. This feeling of being a separate me falls away. And what I think we all need to wake up to as our practice matures is that we all need to fall in love in this way again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And not just with one person. I've always thought that this is what brahmacharya means. For people like us, brahmacharya means using our erotic energy in a creative way. With dignity and integrity and openness and a respect for life. It's creativity. And this is, I think, where celibacy goes wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I think celibacy is so important. I think everybody at some point in their life 
whether, if you ever go to a monastery or not, you should have some period of celibacy um, after you're a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> oh, celibacy, do you have that word? In, I'm not Danish, but yeah, then I don't understand. What language do you speak? Finnish. Finnish? What's the word in Finnish? That's a good question. Like, this one we need Karina here. Like, priests don't have sex, they're celibate. Ah, celibate! Oh! Ah! Because one of the places where celibacy goes wrong is when it gets cold. See, part of celibacy is that you're working, instead of having your uh, erotic energy focused on one person, it's focused on everybody. It's not shut off. It's actually allowed for in a much broader way. So that the real key with celibacy is how to practice celibacy in a way that increases your warmth. So that uh, love is present. So that there's a deep renunciation of your particular preferences. And we can't help but fall in love with each other. Has anybody noticed that this week? I mean, you're with someone and very quickly you should avoid eye contact. Because if you really are present with them, you're going to fall in love with them. Do you know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking about the love where the ego comes in and goes, oh yeah, this person's great. I'm leaving my family. moving to Denmark. But the sense that when you're really present with someone and you really take in their face, you can see a whole life in someone's face. Then uh, you fall for them, and they fall for you. And this happens like a hundred times in the day. You go buy some dream cake. <laughs> Has anybody had this stuff? <laughs> like the most amazing thing. Talked about that last year as well. <laughs> yeah. um, I remember one time. I, I I think I got introduced to dream cake. I used to bump into Irene a lot in the morning, <laughs> and I'd always be eating dream cake. And then I went back to Toronto and I bumped into Maddie. Do you know Maddie, Chuck Miller's former partner? And I said to her, I said, I said, oh, this is Denmark. She said, did you try the dream cake? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was about to go on a tangent, so I'm glad you put your hand up. <laughs> Coming back to Dukkha. <laughs> 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 you said uh, it is built into life. Mm. And uh, what I wonder is that when something is really built into life, I would like to see it as being there for a purpose. Mm -hmm. So what is the purpose? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that is a kind of um, question about evolution that's so interesting. Is that if 
the part of suffering that causes us so much trouble is the, is the joining of suffering with a sense of self. Because it's only when there's a me that's suffering that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Then why, if this causes so much trouble, do human beings not evolve in such a way where this decreases over time, mm. if you believe in evolution? It's yeah. a great question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to answer that question, but it's a really amazing question. And about. what's that? Two few generations. Yeah, yeah. Um, Patanjali talks about something called Abhinivesha, which is that in the face of the sense of self dissolving, a very deep fear arises, which is the fear of letting go of our sense of self. Not in a permanent way, but in that moment where we're called to really be connected to something. You can see this in meditation practice all the time. Like just as things start to get gentle and quiet, the storyteller comes in and owns it. Oh, this is amazing. This is so cool. I am enlightened. (laughs) I must be enlightened. I'm going to start teaching workshops. I'm going to make money off this. (laughs) That happens in Texas. It doesn't happen. Um, So why does this storyteller, who existentially is so afraid of giving up the reins, why doesn't it evolve out of us? Because it actually seems to cause so much trouble. It seems to actually be digging its heels in even more. So, this is a good koan. Well, I'm not denying that the sense of self needs to be there. The sense of self needs to be there. But the way it digs its heels in, I think, causes us so much trouble. Why so tight? If you're not on a meditation cushion and you're, say, a farmer that needs to think about how to not starve to death next year, mm-hmm. that stuff's quite handy. It's just... Yeah, so I'm not denying that you need a sense of self, yeah. but what I'm asking is why does it cling so tight? And why doesn't that look like it's decreasing? Mm-hmm. Did you have oh, but if you look at the self as a species on its own, mm-hmm. then it's a really helpful thing. To keep the self alive. <laughs> so that explains mm-hmm. the evolution. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we figure this out this afternoon? So I just want to say one more thing about the meditation practice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you? Like you talk about falling in love before, can you do it without clinging? Can you fall in love without clinging? Yeah. I don't know, can you? I think it's difficult. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I think that, that, that a deeper experience of love happens in relationship when there's an absence of clinging. And I think we confuse the clinging for the love. Mm-hmm. 
And we only experience a deeper kind of love when um, it comes in from the background, mm. as opposed to trying to make it into a shape mm. in the foreground. I brought a poem I wanted to read about this. Um, I wish I wrote this poem, but Rilke wrote it. Uh, I came across this last night. Uh, Never for a single day do we let the space before us be so unbounded that the blooming of one flower is forever. We are always making it into a world and never letting it be nothing. The pure, the unconstructed, which we breathe and endlessly know and need not crave. Sometimes a child loses herself in this space <coughs> and gets shaken out of it. Or a person dies and becomes it. When death draws near, we look beyond it with an animal's wild gaze. Lovers come close to the open. Isn't that a beautiful line? Mm. Lovers come close to the open. Filled with wonder when the beloved doesn't block the view. <laughs> it surges up behind the other, unbidden, but it's hard to grasp, so it becomes the world again. Ever turn toward what we create, we see only reflections of the open, overshadowed by us. Except when an animal quietly looks us through and through. This is our fate. We stand in our own way. Forever we're in the way. <laughs> Isn't that so beautiful? Always in the way. I think that this is such a good description of meditation practice. Mm -hmm. We have these phases where we drop into the open, and then we're in the way again. Mm -hmm. We're in the way again. And that's why I said, you know, to, to most of you here who've been coming five years, ten years, however long, you have so much technique already. So just keep staying with the practice mm -hmm. and let it ripen. And just see how you get in the way of the open. It's so simple. You don't need so much fancy language, even though the fancy language really helps. <laughs> There's a great story about uh, a Zen teacher from, who lived in San Francisco, who died in the 70s, named Shunri Suzuki. Um, Maybe next year we should do Shinru Suzuki. Maybe we should study his book, A Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Um, anyways, uh, there's a great story about him where he is in, I think it's a laundromat, and he bumps into a young monk who had just come from Japan, who didn't speak English, uh, who was 23 years old, young priest. And he said to the priest, you should come sit with me. You should come sit with our community. So the priest said, oh, okay. So the priest came and started sitting with his community. And then um, he went up to the priest and said, you should give the Dharma talk. And the priest said, no, 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 I don't know any English. I hardly know three or four words. 
And he's like, oh, that's okay, you should give the talk. And then he said, no, 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 I can't give the talk. So later that day, they went to the meditation hall. Shinra Suzuki stood up to give the talk, went to the front of the room, and he said, today is today. Today is not tomorrow. Today is not yesterday. Today is today. And the young monk stood up, and he couldn't believe it, that Shinra Suzuki just gave a talk with five words. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the most profound thing he'd ever heard. (laughs) And the talk, Shinra Suzuki's intention in the talk, was to show this monk that you could share this whole practice with five words. Maybe with each other in our relationships, we can share this practice with less than five words. Maybe we don't need any words. Just the way uh, you greet somebody, you greet them like how you want to be greeted. Maybe we could all do this when we go home today. Just to appreciate the openness that stands behind the person that you think you love. Because it's them, and it's not them. Because they don't even know who they are. What a relief. (laughs) I remember when I was young, I studied psychoanalysis. And I remember in the Freudian school, how they had this crazy idea that if you do enough analysis, you can make your unconscious conscious. (laughs) And I thought, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. How can you make the unconscious, which seems like the ocean, and your conscious, which is like a little cork, (laughs) floating around, you could make, I would think, do you just stop dreaming? (laughs) Didn't make any sense to me. And I thought, that seems backwards. The problem seems to be that the conscious fights so hard to be that cork floating on the ocean. But actually, what it needs to do is have a much more fluid relationship with the impermanent nature of reality. Because the ego is not impermanent. The ego is always trying to create permanence. But it's impossible. Yes. How do you actually define what's, what is conscious? What is conscious? How do you define what's conscious, what's unconscious? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's a great question. I like the one you, you did. I heard one of your talks about Jung. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and Jung defines these as the unconsciousness. Is oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jung has a great definition. Yeah. He says, uh, the unconscious is unconscious. <laughs> <laughs> that's his definition. <laughs> And I was trying to poke at the Freudians, because Jung was trying to say, if it's unconscious, you can't see it. But Jung also said that the only way that you see what's unconscious is through projection. So the only way you can see what's unconscious is actually in relationship. I have a young student who moved to a monastery, and he wrote me an email saying, I've never been so angry until I moved to a monastery. (laughs) Because suddenly, 
you're in all the relationships you thought you could run away from. <laughs> That's why I think, you know, maybe one of the hardest things is just to have a deep relationship with one person. I know monogamy is not cool these days, but actually, try it sometime. <laughs> just to have a relationship that gets deeper and deeper and deeper with one person. It's kind of easier to love a lot of people. <laughs> because there's this one person, and constantly the background is coming in and shifting them. And constantly the background is coming in behind you and shifting you. So there is no relationship there. I, I mean, there is no capital R relationship. One of my favorite things about the Sanskrit language is that there's no capitals. So you can't reify a word. They're all interdependent. Like in Toronto, you can say capital T, truth. Or capital S, self. You cannot work with Yeah, you can't make it into a thing. So easily. Because you can't capitalize it. Like here, we capitalize a word like the self is like this big S. <laughs> okay, so anyways, uh, let's go back to uh, the text. The text. <laughs> Do we need to take a break? Do you want to take a break before we go back to the text? Should we just jump in? Okay. We're going to go straight till uh, 7 or 8 tonight. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that we ended at this uncomfortable state mm -hmm. is cured. Is that right? Yes. I wish Benoit was here to read. <laughs> I can read he it. Such a, he has such <laughs> a good accent. Is this uncomfortable state? Well, anybody, whoever wants to read. Mm -hmm. This uncomfortable state is cured only by the passage of time, which is the great healer if we will let it be. Time will heal everything. This is its nature. Usually we hold onto the past and so won't don't allow time to do its real work in our lives. But those who get this far in the practice usually, but not always, have enough concentration inside and enough support outside to avoid this entrapment. And so they can allow time to work its magic. And after a while, they can set into their new commitment, go beyond the childlike stage, and begin to mature. They reconstitute their lives around their new commitments. They take on new practices, new studies, even their dharma relationships, let go of all aspirations, and fantasies and illusions and are content to just go on day by day with the practice. More time passes. Here is where we're sitting into the fifth stage, the dry place, and we get here bit by bit without knowing it, because we're not perfect in our letting go to the healing winds of time. <laughs> <laughs> 
In fact, in a subtle way, we hold on to our life, even while we, have, while we have given it up entirely in renunciation. The time, this subtle fact, this time, this subtle fact is not necessarily announced to us in, in a dramatic way. We may not necessarily notice it at all. Sorry, does someone take over? We go on practicing sincerely, seemingly, seemingly going deeper and deeper with our renunciation, becoming more and more settled in the life of the Dharma. But this becomes exactly the problem. We are too settled. We seem to be getting a little bit dull, a little bit bored. We've lost the edge of our seeking and searching mind and are feeling fairly comfortable. We have a position in the community. We are an experienced person, a respected member. We have a good grasp of the teachings, or at least we have heard them so often that we seem to have a grasp of them. And then, whether we notice it or not, we strike a dry patch, a time of nothingness and dullness and lack. We can't go back into our old life it seems, and yet there seems nowhere to go forward to. And we can't even believe in the notion of going forward or backward. Where could we go forward to, and certainly how could we ever go backward? We are quite stuck, and there, then fear arises. Fear of never realizing or even glimpsing the path. Fear of the world we have left behind. Fear of what we ourselves have become. Sometimes none of this surfaces at all. We just go about our business in the monastery feeling quite self-satisfied, but actually dying a little bit more every day. Up until now our path may have been difficult at times, but it has always been positive. We have always been growing and learning. But at this point we have stopped growing and learning. This is exactly the problem and we have mistaken the laziness or dullness that cover our fear for the calmness that comes of renunciation. It's true that our mind is calm, but it's a dark, not a bright calm. Our creativity, our passion, our humanness is beginning to leave us little by little, and often we have no idea that this is happening to us. This is the hardest stage to appreciate and work with. Often no one, not even the elders and teachers of the community, can recognize that this is happening to us. Indeed, those very elders and teachers may themselves be in the midst of such a stage and be unaware of it. In this stage, what we have seen as the cure for our lives, what everyone in the community has affirmed and devoted their lives to, now becomes the very poison that is killing us off slowly. I have tried to dis, uh, discern the signs of this stage in myself and others, and it is not an easy thing to do. It is not easy in oneself because it's so subtle, and not easy in others because it, it is subtle, though less subtle, <laughs> and they often do not want to hear it. Because to overcome this stage, to go beyond it, might very well take and leaving the community or otherwise doing something very radical to shift the ground. And most of us 
have a hard time after going in a particular direction for 10 or 20 years, a direction that has involved great effort and sacrifice, changing directions. Our fear, acknowledged or not, holds us back, and we may stay in this way for a very long time. Oh, perhaps for the rest of our lives. <laughs> Somebody else. This happens, of course, to anyone, to anyone in any walk of life, and it may be not better or worse when it happens within the context of a religious community. But a religious community holds very strongly to a commitment to awareness and truthfulness, and so when it happens within such a community, even if only to a few individuals. <coughs> It is like a disease in that, in that community. And the effect of the disease can be felt in many ways and on many levels. There can be a subtle occlusion in the flow of communication, an almost imper imperceptible dishonesty, a jarring or not so jarring sense of disjunction. disjunction. Even though no one... <coughs> may recognize where the failure to discern the effects of this stage is a few community members is the, um, is the cause of the disjunction. People who come can feel the disjunction, perhaps not at first, but after a while it becomes subtly apparent. So it is very important for each individual to remain open to the possibility that this dry place may be arising in his or her life and to have the courage to address it when it comes. Because it will come and it must come and it will come again and again. If one is willing to address it, it becomes an opportunity to go deeper, a chance to let go and to let go a little more and open up to time's healing power and the love that comes only in this way. If one can do it, and it's never done alone, it's always done in the company of and with the help of others, then there is a great, although a quiet, opening into the simple joy of living the religious life every day. The monastery may have great controversies and problems, as any group of people will have, but these no longer have a stickiness that will catch us. We can enjoy being with the others, but not need to feel compelled by them. The simple things of the daily round, the quiet meditation periods, the sound of the bells, the daily work, the sky and air and earth of the place where we live and practice, all of these things take on a great depth of peacefulness and contentment. We come to appreciate very much the tradition to which we now truly belong. We feel a personal relationship to the ancients and see them as people very much like ourselves. Texts that formerly seemed arcane or luminous now seem autobiographical. <laughs> we have a great gratitude for the place where the monastery is located, for the whole planet that supports it.
our life becomes marked with by gratitude. We delight in expressing it wherever and in whatever way we can. This is the sixth stage, the stage of appreciation. Very good. I think he describes that stage longer than any other stage. <laughs> <laughs> Namely, it's what was going on for him when he wrote it. <laughs> Maybe this seems like a good time to have a break, mm-hmm. and then we can discuss it further. So uh, let's take 15 minutes. Uh, so I would like to do two things before the day ends. One, full enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> but that's for me, not for me. <laughs> um, Two things. Uh, one is, uh, I just want to see if there's any questions um, about anything we've covered. Asana, pranayama, meditation practice, etc. Or any terms I've used that you're not clear about. And then I want to have a little time to just talk a little bit more together about the dry place. Um, yes. I have a question. I asked it before. Okay. Maybe on the first night. Um, the relation or the, 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 the limit between uh, shamatha and vipassana. So when I sit, I, I'm often a little bit confused of how much to open up to other things than the breath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How much to let in. Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, just to, to uh, be clear for people who maybe weren't here, mm-hmm. um, in almost every tradition of uh, meditation that I'm familiar with, they have two different aspects. <laughs> Even though they don't always articulate it this way, you can kind of see it in the technique. Uh, one is called shamatha, and the other is called vipassana. Uh, sham means to stop and to calm. Uh, vipassana means to look into. Hmm? So uh, usually, meditative practice starts with shamatha, and different schools have big fights over this. Um, do you have to learn both? Does one lead to the other? If you do one stronger than the other, you go around in circles. They're like two feet. There's a lot of debate about this. Trust me. Um, but the basic idea of shamatha vipassana is basically saying stop and see. It's hard to see clearly when you don't have the ability to stop because we're running around so much. Um, So one of the nice things about meditating on the breath um, is that when you focus on the inhale and exhale, it's very embodied, which I like very, very much. And the other thing that's interesting about the breath, which is different from meditating on a candle or meditating on a mantra, is that most things, when you focus on them, they get more vivid. But with the breath, the more you feel it, the more gentle and quiet it becomes until it trails off to almost nothing. 
And then, as soon as you're distracted, the breath gets coarse again, and then it's easy to find, which is great. Okay? So, um, I like the breath for its calming quality and its embodied quality. Even though I practice and teach sometimes some other techniques, I always come back to that. Always come back to that. And any of you who've been doing that practice for many years, you know you come back to the breath and it's like completely brand new again and there's something else to see. Mm -hmm. Once you can get calm, and I think I talked about this on Friday night, some different techniques for doing that. We talked about counting. We talked about the peace in, peace out practice. Did, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So in the tradition that I was first trained in, which is the Western Vipassana tradition, the idea is you wait till the student gets calm, and then you start giving them questions to start to look at. So, for example, if someone has different sensations appearing, you get them to really focus on the impermanent nature of those sensations. And from the place of quietude, they don't think about it. They're just really noticing sensations, and usually some big shifts happen, which we call stages of insight. And the shift could be something like somebody has an opening where they really see that nothing lasts. And everybody can say this, oh, nothing lasts. But <laughs> after 10 days of sitting still and getting really quiet, when you sometimes when you have these kind of insight, it changes your whole life, actually. Really big change of heart. Your values change. Um, so we call that vipassana. Right? Really looking into. And usually you're looking at what's traditionally called the three characteristics. Uh, impermanence. Dukkha, right? Seeing how things are unreliable and uh, not self. That nothing you experience belongs to me and mine. Even me and mine. Okay? I won't get too far into that. But that's the basic idea. Um, the tradition that really does away with this is the Zen tradition. Because in the Zen tradition, especially in the practice of koans, which I haven't talked about at all this week, but one year we'll do that too. But in the practice of koans, the idea is to collapse shamatha and vipassana together so that uh, you would be given a question to pay attention to that has no logical answer that you can't think your way to a conclusion about. And that would be the object of meditation. And you stay with it, and you stay with it, and you stay with it, so that the calmness and the insight are happening simultaneously. And that's how the koan tradition works, which is a tradition that I practice, which I love very, very much. Um, and um, the first koan in the curriculum, which has a thousand koans, is usually the koan uh, mu, which comes from a story where someone asks Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature? And he answers, mu, <laughs> which means no, which means no. And so the teacher would get you to just meditate on this all the time. Moo, moo, no, no, 
And every time the mind holds on to something, no. And it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, but usually that's the most important call. And then once you pass that, there's a thousand more to make sure you really got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you just yeah. say again the three permanents and the questions? The three characteristics yeah. all seem to revolve around yeah. impermanence, dukkha, and not-self. Um, so for an example of that could be like feeling your breathing until there's some real calmness. And when I say calmness, I mean there's no commentary moving through the mind. There could be thoughts, but there's no commentary about them. Remember we talked about that on the first day? I know that some, this might be a jump for some of you who haven't been here. Uh, sorry, Lou. Um, but then you, you might ask a question like, let's say there's some calmness, you might then say to yourself, who is breathing? This is a practice I love doing in Shavasana. You lie in Shavasana, but you don't close your eyes. You keep them open. And you ask yourself, who is lying here? And if your mind comes in and answers, you've totally missed it. <laughs> then you have to do shamatha again. But if you can just ask the question, who... You had Martine Batchelor here. I'm sure she talked about the Korean koan that everybody gets. What is this? All the time during the day. Every time you're distracted, you just remember to come back to the koan. What is this? What is that? So, th so that's like a technique of trying to see in deeper than just what you see. Uh -huh. But you never answer the question. And another time when we talk more about cons, I can tell you what you can do with it, but that would take us too far away from the dry place. <laughs> yes. yes. Well, I hold on. Did, did I answer your question a little bit? Yeah. And, and, and to, to get more practical, would you recommend that to play around with this? I mean, to, 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 to sit with the breath until I feel like really calm and then try uh -huh. it out with, with the... Yeah, you could try out the who question. Yeah. Like, if you can really feel the breath get gentle, mm -hmm. then just go, who's breathing? Mm. And then you might give that up after 10, 20 minutes. You just might go, okay. And then you just go back to the shamatha practice. Mm -hmm. So there's different routes you can take. Yeah. Um, sometimes people just stay with the shamatha route, and you don't do the vipassana route so quick. So that would be like getting calm, Noticing sensations in the body, noticing how they change, noticing feelings and how they change, noticing how sounds are changing. And then you go from just following the breath and you open up and you open up and you open up until you can just sit. And whatever's happening is just happening. And you kind of let go of the breath now. Breath is just in the background. And it's just open awareness. And whatever shows up is just showing up. You just sit there. There's no meditating. Okay. And then after a while, your mind gets something, and you're off, and then you have to start from the beginning again. Right? So you can kind of like deepen within the shamatha practice also. Uh, okay. Okay. 
Um, yeah, it's a question about like positive thinking mm-hmm. and then meditating on impermanence. Because I just had the experience of impermanence with the fear of losing my eyesight. Yes. And it was, of course, very intense. Yeah. And I felt actually that some of the, like the Yoga Nidra, Sankalpa things were very useful. And at the same time, mm-hmm. and, and you know, impermanence also with time, like yeah. time is, is healing, but yeah. it also really caused um, like a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Because I was faced with, like, okay, when I'm all fine, mm-hmm. impermanence and, and uh, meditating on that. Yeah. And, and then when it was not, it was almost like, I need. And the technique, or and, and so I was just wondering, yeah. like with past, like those more effort, effortless techniques, or yes, techniques, or yes. So I have different theories about this. So I'm just going to answer from my own personal perspective. I feel like I've been very lucky, where I've had really good teacher-student relationships. Most people I know are not so lucky. They've been screwed up somehow. Um, the, you know, have you heard about these kind of things? <laughs> okay. But I find when a relationship is solid, what you experience in these techniques is a tremendous amount of kindness mm-hmm. and warmth and love that supports the whole process. Without that, it gets very, very dry. And I think that's why these days, when meditation is taught to large groups of people, and there's not such close teacher-student relationships, it's really important to include practices that have positive, affirmative thinking to counteract the negative thinking and to fill in the space that's quiet. Because that's okay to do sometimes. So next time Nikolai offers his meta workshop here, is there one coming up, Nikolai? When? In December. Yeah, that everybody should go. Okay, because there is built into these traditions, and I don't know if Nikolai talks about this, but this is also in the Yoga Sutra tradition, the end of the first chapter. Um, there is a teaching called the Brahma Vihara where you introduce loving practices for yourself, for people in your life who are neutral, for people in your life you love, and for your enemies. (laughs) And I think that this is really, really important because anybody who's tried it The hardest part is to direct loving energy inward. It is so hard to forgive ourselves. We are so annoying. So I think that when you are able to get calm, then you should start bringing in those kind of practices and really turning that loving energy inward. because it provides a really solid ground underneath you that I think we all could benefit from. Because I don't know why this is. Here's another evolution issue. 
But why is it so easy to go to the negative? Okay. Like, I don't know about you, but... Okay, I have a small bladder or something, <laughs> where I'm aging too quickly, but I have to wake up every night at 3 a.m. on the dot to go pee. Okay? So, if I get to the bathroom, and I... Are you recording this? <laughs> I get to the bathroom and I pee, and I get back in bed, everything's fine. Okay? But if I get back to the bathroom and I pee, and it just takes a little longer than usual, or I can't get right to sleep, my mind starts worrying. Mm -hmm. I, I, I was just reading in Harper's Magazine uh, an article by Rebecca Solnit. Does anyone know her? Great writer. And, and she talks about insomnia. She has this great line where she says, her mind gets so bad at 3 a.m. that she can worry about pancake recipes. <laughs> so it's so interesting to see how the mind can do that. You know, it goes to the negative. Mm -hmm. So these meta practices are very, very good for that. And um, uh, there's two books that I can highly recommend. Uh, one is Sharon Salzberg's beautiful book, Loving Kindness. And the, the other one is her uh, comrade, uh, Jack Hornfield. He wrote a beautiful book called A Wise Heart, mm -hmm. which I think wasn't maybe one of his best-selling books, but... It's a book about how when he studied Western psychology, you're so trained to see the negative mm -hmm. in patterns, and how his meditation training kind of changed his attitude about how to look. And very beautiful. It's called A Wise Heart, and his writing is so simple. It's so good. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I highly recommend that. And uh, even better than reading those books, is uh, December with Nikolai. <laughs> Anything else you want me to promote, Nikolai? <laughs> Talk later about the money. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Um, more questions about the unconscious. Concept. Um, Can I just say one more thing yes. about the meta practice? I don't really teach it so much here except in the chant at the end. Because I... I really feel like if you get the spirit of what we're doing today, it's built in to how we're relating to each other. And I hope that you feel some warmth in that. Um, but still, you should go into center. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Uh, no, I was wondering if there's uh, a similar dichotomy in the Eastern philosophical traditions mm -hmm. between, between uh, unconscious and conscious. Like, would it, would it, could it translate into some scala at all, the unconscious version? Yeah. <laughs> There's big debates about this. Yeah. Uh, afterwards, I can tell you some academic articles you could look up. Okay. There's currently a big debate in academia about this. It's just that I was sometimes, like some of the yoga so I read also a little bit like this, that when you reach those, uh, when you really get into it, then it, it, everything becomes conscious. Yeah, that's, that, I think we're, that's reading one paradigm into another paradigm. Mm -hmm. But yes, some, there's two words that get used. One is samskara, and the other is vasana. Mm -hmm. And they both kind of mean the same thing, which is deep traces that are in our psychology, in our physiology, all through our sense organs, and also through the culture. Okay. And every time you have an action, remember, called karma, oh, 
Here's another cool word, samskara. Remember yesterday I was saying that in Vedic culture, there was this idea that you had to fulfill certain obligations in order to secure a better reincarnation. And those are called samskaras. Okay, well, as we get to the change in the Upanishadic culture, especially the teachings of the Buddha, the whole idea of samskara changes. And instead, it becomes more internalized, which basically means that every time you take an action, it leaves a scar. And the word sum is the same as the word sum, like um, it's the same as the prefix in English com, like community, the come together. So it's the coming together of scars. It's the coming together of the effects of your actions. Right? So you have a cigarette, right? And then psychophysiologically, next time you feel bored, you need a cigarette again. That's a samskara. You see? And then having a cigarette is not just a pattern that's built into your body, it's also then built into our economy. We have to grow tobacco, and so on and so on and so on. And then you can see that every action moves out into this web that's called samskara. As opposed to samskara just being like some way to pay attention to your actions so that you don't get reborn. Mm -hmm. Or if you do, you get reborn as a man. (laughs) Okay? So, samskaras are mostly unconscious. But there wasn't a word then to describe unconsciousness no, outside and, of our life. And is there like a like a pair to cover in a dichotomous way, like a, then like a, something conscious as opposed to the samskara? Would they have would they pair with something? Uh, yeah, we might be going on too far of a tangent, but so. yes. So the word for the conscious part of a samskara is called granti, mm-hmm. which means a knot. And it's the part of a pattern where there's a knot that you can recognize. So a granti is actually a symptom of a samskara. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the part of a pattern that you can know. You can know the symptom. I mean, this is a very different idea of pattern, holding patterns or habits than Western psychology. Because the basic idea is actually when you have a, a pattern or a habit, you can only know a tiny little bit of it. But the causes of it are way beyond what's comprehensible consciously. Because there's so many factors. It's what sociologists are always arguing with psychologists about. Is, oh, you think that that's an individual problem, actually? That's totally related to uh, the way we're building shopping malls. Right? And then the economists come in, but that's totally the fault of capitalism. And that's why everyone's anxious. Right? Mm. And so the truth is, is that actually all those things are true, <laughs> even though you have to start somewhere. Right? And so what I like about the idea of samskara and granti is that it, it makes our personal problems so much bigger 
that we start to have more respect for them, which I think naturally happens when you get old. Hmm. When people age, they start to say things like, oh yeah, that's that habit. <laughs> and it's okay, because they see that it's the same one their father had, but a lesser degree. Hmm. And it's okay now, because it's okay, they see where they got from. And then, they start having more compassion for their parents. Mm -hmm. Because they see, oh, their parents, that wasn't a personal vendetta against me. That was my mom working out her samskaras that she inherited, not from her parents, but also the way her culture created her gender, created certain kinds of dukkha that were unique to her time. Like we have certain kinds of suffering, like anxiety, or ADHD, that are unique to our time, that we've created culturally, you see. Um, and yes, it's the fault of supermarkets, <laughs> and Monsanto, and all these things, and also, we don't know what the source is. So, um, the dry place. Uh, any other questions or comments before we... Technical one about yeah, the, sure. uh, we were doing Jabhasan Sasana, mm -hmm. and you you took it away. That was an A, but if you do yeah. like B and C when you have your leg yeah. up against, can you do still do the same? I was thinking about it afterwards. Can well, you still, B, your foot's underneath your right, pelvis. Right. Yeah. But are you still working on the same action? No. No. Okay. No. In in B, you're externally rotated. Right. And in C, you're majorly internally rotating in the strangest way. Mm -hmm. yeah. So A is like both, B is external, C is okay. internal. That's my theory. No, I can You could prove me wrong, though. <laughs> I, prove, I like proving myself wrong. <laughs> suggestion for the last thing we do today. Mm -hmm. um, I thought we could just break up into groups of three mm -hmm. for ten minutes and each person gets three minutes to share with the group how you have been or are in a dry place. <laughs> um, maybe somebody could have a clock um, and you could just give each person three minutes and just share. And this only works if you're honest. Yeah. Um, so, but there's some rules. One, it's confidential. Do you hear that? So don't go up to someone in the street up and go, oh, I totally relate to, yeah, I, he's an asshole. <laughs> um, number two, speak from your heart in first person. And number three, no Dharma talks. So don't sit there and go, oh yeah, the nature of the dry place is... <laughs> <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. But so, is it about the is it about the, like, yoga meditation? Uh, Just any place in your life 
where you are in a dry place. It could be in relationship to your practice. It could be in relationship to another person. It could be in relationship to, you know, your passion. It could be in your work. Yeah. And, and, not, and you don't have to do it in a clean way, like, oh, I was in a dry place, but now I really see that things are going to move. I only want to hear about the dry place. Okay? All right. So, a group of three. Make sure you know each other's name. I'll ring the bell in ten minutes.